Well, hey, welcome back. We are so thankful that you've joined us this week for the Love First podcast. And of course, as you can tell, we've got investigative journalist Jerry Mitchell back with us. And Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. Last week, you left us on the edge, and so we're going to pick <laughs> up there, and we're excited about that. If you are returning, thank you so much for supporting this important work. Thank you for uh, liking, subscribing, and sharing. And also, if this is your first time, we want you to know that the purpose of this podcast is to catalyze courageous conversations to revolutionize the way that we love each other. And so I just want to thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast, and uh, let's get right to it. Love first, I know. All right. So, uh, Jerry, uh, for those that weren't with us last week, take a moment, reintroduce yourself, and then we'll pick up with the story. Well, I'm, I'm an investigative reporter. I now run a nonprofit known as the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. And uh, so if you know any big donors out there that want to give us money, let me know. <laughs> but we're trying to basically, because, and it's not just Mississippi, but, but it's felt more acutely in Mississippi, you know, these newsrooms have been shutting down. We want to uh, continue to provide this important, you know, look, it's, it's hard-hitting investigative reporting. I think that makes democracy work like it should. And, and, uh, and people have information to make those decisions that they should be able to. Yeah. Uh, I think that's part of the problem right now. We've got a lot of noise out there. Yep. And uh, we, we need trusted, trusted news sources that we can go to. Um, and so, um, yeah, I got, I got started in this journey back in 1989, saw the movie Mississippi Burning. It kind of sent me down this trail of looking at these unpunished killings, I guess you could say, uh, from the civil rights era. And there, there are, you know, more than 120 of those. Mm. But uh, the book deals with four of them. For the, the unput in terms of cases, four cases. Yes. And before we move off of this, the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, people can look that up and, and uh, MCIR. Mississippi CIR dot org. If you want to come look at our website, we'd love to have you. Uh, we've written a, a lot about about everything you can imagine. So we, uh, and we certainly investigate reporting is what we do. We're doing a series right now. Uh, it's getting ready to come out called Poverty and the Pandemic. So we're looking at, at places that have been, um, it's just shocking. I mean, there are places where we're, you know, it's exposing these kind of holes in uh, our healthcare system and, and things like that, that a lot of these rural hospitals in Mississippi have shut down. Mm. And so you, You've got people that are having to go, you know, an hour or more for care, you know, different things like that. So it's a, it's not a good situation. This is important, important work. And something uh, that I've learned through you more acutely, as well as some people in our own church who do this kind of investigative reporting, is that you become a voice for the voiceless. You tell stories mm -hmm. so that other people can uh, their voices can be elevated so that they exactly. can be heard. And something that is so striking to me 
is that in the case of these uh, unprosecuted civil rights era murders, that literally it was investigating reporting that led to the reopening of these cases. And you had a direct impact on justice being brought to these, uh, these cases. And, and, and I'm not alone in that. I mean, I'm not the only reporter who's actually done this work. Uh, and so there were, I think, 24 convictions in these various cases across the U.S., which is an amazing number. And I'm quoting someone else that's saying that basically a reporter's work led to the reopenings, I think, of almost every, either the reopenings or in terms of evidence, you know, contributing toward the evidence of the, of the case. So, well, let's, let's dive into these next. All right, let's go. So, uh, last week, we started with the Mississippi burning case. Uh, Freedom Summer, 1964, there was a very uh, light conviction of the Klansman that ordered the murder, Sam Bauer. Nobody got prosecuted for murder. No one got prosecuted for murder. And that kind of hit a dead end. But in the middle of all of that, you came across the opportunity to reopen the Medgar Evers case, which did lead uh, to the conviction of his killer, Byron Dillebeckwith. But, but overlapping in all of this is also, especially overlapping with Sam Bowers, is the Vernon Damer case, January 10th, 1966. So take us to that case open it up for us and tell us what happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, Vernon Damer was a farmer, businessman, entrepreneur, uh, totally dedicated to voting rights. He believed that America would begin to change, voting rights began to change, which African Americans didn't have, like basically Mississippi and much of the South, and to be honest, across the country even, um, you know, on back in time. So, Basically, that's what he was dedicated to. And the Klan didn't like that, attacked him and his family in the middle of the night, as you mentioned, January 10th, 1966, about two o'clock in the morning, firebombed, you know, the, the Damer home, uh, began firing their guns into the home. And um, Bern Damer woke up, grabbed his shotgun, ran the front of the house, began firing back the Klansmen so his family could escape safely out of back window. But unfortunately, the flames of the fire seared his lungs and he died later that day. Yeah. A few weeks later in the mail came his voter registration card. Mm-hmm. He fought his whole life for the right of all Americans to be able to vote and never been able to cast a ballot himself. Yeah. And so Sam Bowers ordered that. Uh, he was the head of the Klan. He ordered that attack, and um, but was never convicted. And so uh, the Damer family approached me after Byron Dela Beckwith was indicted, which was in late 90. And so I met with them and they kind of began to tell me the story, which I knew nothing about. Uh, in fact, Vernon Damer is kind of one of those untold stories of, yes. of, of courage and uh, in the civil rights movement. And uh, um interesting addendum because i'll forget it if i I don't think because i thought of it right now is there is a now a statue of vernon damer outside the courthouse wow wow so here we have a man Mm -hmm. who because of his lighter skin uh, could have 
passed for could have passed for white. White. He was that white. Chose, His dad was white, actually. He had a, a white father. Yeah. Yes. Chose to embrace his uh, full self. And uh, that, that was an extremely difficult path. But he was a successful business person. He provided yes. employment for people. He was known to be willing to offer the financing for anyone who could not pay the poll tax. He would, he would pay poll taxes for people and he collected the poll taxes at his grocery store. And that's one of the reasons the Klan attacked was uh, he had basically was doing that. You know. And doing everything he could to give people the opportunity. Absolutely. Registering African-Americans, all those kind of things. Yes. And by the way, by this point, the Voting Rights Act had actually passed. So it wasn't like, you know, you had federal registrars coming in and register. And, and the guy was the circuit clerk there was a notorious Theron Lynn. Uh, he, he got, he was found in contempt of court for not letting, you know, black Mississippians register vote, et cetera. Wow. So how did the, how did you find a break in the Vernon? Day? In that case. Where did well, the break come from? Well, it came later. Uh, initially, it looked like they were going to, the, the DA acted like it was going to do something, and then he got cold feet over time. And so then another DA came in that seemed even less interested. And then, and I'm literally at uh, grad school at Ohio State. I went mid-career to Ohio State. I got a fellowship. So I'm literally working my master's. And I get a call that spring from this guy that said he has information on the Vernon Namer case and wants to meet with me. So I flew back to Mississippi. It was me and a few sons of Vernon Damer, a few other folks. We met and he told his story about how he, when he was a kid, he worked for Sam Bowers and he had basically overheard Sam Bowers give the orders to kill Vernon Damer. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, uh, the case got reopened essentially. And he he went undercover for a while, you know, basically talking to Sam Bowers, which I think is one of the more interesting parts of the book of him kind of going undercover and talking to Bowers. And, and then um, eventually, you know, uh, and then the other key thing was a guy named Billy Roy Pitts, who was involved in the killing, uh, dropped his gun, got caught, plea guilty to murder, got a life sentence for that, and then plea guilty to federal uh, charges and got time for that. And bottom line, I found the guy. And he was living in Louisiana. And uh, there's, a, there's a relatively young thing at that point called the internet. And that's how I found it. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, so it, it turned out he had not served a single day of his life sentence. And I reported that. And so he got arrested. And yeah, it's a long story short, but essentially Bowers got arrested and, uh, in, in spring of uh, 1998. So let's put this together. The killing, I mean, the murder is in 1966. Correct. Now we're talking about 1998, which is 32 years. 32 years have passed. And a key breakthrough comes from a guy who got a life sentence and never served a day of it. Never served a single day. So... Uh, one of the things I want us to kind of surface in the second part of our conversation is that it's hard sometimes for uh, in our current, like 
2020 conversation, I think it's hard for sometimes for people to know that there is a load of context. Yes. To, yes. This, to this difficulty of trusting the entire system from the DAs to the prosecutors all the way down the line. It was, I mean, you know, like you look in the previous case, you're talking about Byron Deal back where you had three police officers testifying for the defense. <laughs> so, you know, basically lying, claiming they saw Byron Deal back with one of them, by the way, was spotted as in FBI records as being a Klan meeting. So, I mean, you know, so, and then you, of course, later on, we already mentioned the Mississippi burning case, you had law enforcement actually involved in the killings. Yeah. So, um, so those are the kind of things, if you understand that context, why African-Americans, for those of us who happen to be white, and we, you know, maybe there's some that wonder, well, what, what you know, what are these African-Americans upset about? Why are they upset, you know? And if you understand the context and the history, of course there's immense distrust, you know, in the African-American community because of this history and, 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 uh, and other things. This is part of why I wanted to surface this conversation because at times a conversation can seem out of place to some people, right? But it 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 feels like a never-ending story to other people. And so, uh, well, I talked to all these families after what happened to George Floyd. I actually went and interviewed uh, these exact same families, and for them, this is like a renewal of night. You know, it's like nightmares again. Wow. You know, of, of what Marley Evers told me, you know, it's just yes. trying to relive all this. It's just, it brings up all of that anger and, and hate and things like that, that, you know, you thought were well, you were past, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It just kind of resurrects uh, seeing George Floyd and, of course, uh, uh, young man Armand Aubrey. Brianna Taylor and yeah, others. it's just awful, and, and so it's just yeah, we 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 the, the way the reason history is important is we can try to learn from it, and if we don't learn our history, which we are not very good at doing, unfortunately, in this country, then we tend to relive it, and we tend to go in cycles and do the same thing over, yeah, you know, same stupid things over and over again. <laughs> yes, and when you mentioned that number. 120 of these cases, right? Yeah, more than that. I don't even know the total right. number. Yeah. We know some of the more famous ones, but... Most you don't. Most people don't. They're, they're, the vast majority of that number you don't know. Yep, yep. So we, we Sam Bowers gets convicted, and yeah, yeah. for context for this podcast, Sam Bowers did not die until 2006. That's right, in prison. Yeah. So again, in, in kind of a little bit of our mindset that this is distant history, mm -hmm. that, that myth keeps getting confronted by something as simple as dates. I also want to bring something up. You sure. said last week, uh, you said, hey, man, I've lived here long enough now. I'm a Mississippian, right? And mm -hmm. so my wife and I were talking about this the other day. We've lived in Atlanta for 24 years. For both of us, that's longer than we've ever lived anywhere. 
right? Including where we grew up. Congratulations, you're in Atlanta now. (laughs) We do deeply, deeply love our city. We love Atlanta. We we don't just live here. We love it. We're invested in the city. And so like you and Jackson, uh, I know I'm going to embarrass you uh, with the moment unsuspected. So for everyone that's listening, sorry to my host, uh, Jerry here, but a famous author from Jackson, Eudora Welty, who made an indelible impact on the literary world. One of her biographers lives in Jackson. And so Jerry set it up for us, my wife and I, to go meet her, get a tour, a signed copy of her most recent book. But in that time, when we just mentioned to her how much we appreciated it, she said to my wife and I, she said, Jerry Mitchell is a national treasure. We love him in Jackson. And uh, I, I wanted you to know. It's very that. kind. You know, I, I, uh, <laughs> so, but why am I saying I give, I give glory to God. It's, Amen. It's, but the yeah. reason I'm saying that is because sometimes we don't realize that committing and investing ourselves in uh, the places where we live, we yes. don't understand that seemingly small things can, together with all the other people that are working hard, can help to yield good outcomes for yes. the benefit of our community. And I just wanted to highlight that. I don't mean well, to, that's, that's kind of, but I wanted to highlight that. So as we take another step then, another very, very uh, important case that you touch on in the book uh, is the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, September 15, 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama. Tell us about how you got involved in that case. Uh, pretty simple. We decided, my editors and I decided after Bowers was convicted, it was kind of like, and I even had people say to her, who's next, Jerry? You know what I mean? Because you, you, after a couple of cases, there's this reputation and you, and suddenly you're expected, you know. But we decided, well, let's write about these cases that are already being looked at. Mm-hmm. Like what cases are out there and are being looked at? Mm-hmm. And so that's what we tried to do. And one of them was uh, the FBI had already reopened it, or the Justice Department had, but the Birmingham church bombing, as you mentioned, which was carried out by the Klan uh, yes. in 63. And it was in response to basically integration, school integration there. And so that was what happened. And so I actually went over and interviewed Doug Jones, uh, he and I kind of hit it off, I mean, you know, and still to this day, you've got along really very well. Yes. And did a, I did a little profile of Doug. I found out that the grand jury was looking at this and actually broke that story in October of uh, 98. And, and, uh, and the interesting little tidbit on that story is that story, AP picked it up and it ran nationally. And the uh, Bobby Cherry is one of the last living suspects in that case. Yes. And I went, I interviewed him as well for that story. Well, turned out his ex-wife, whose name is Willa Dean Rogdon, had read that story that I wrote about that the grand jury was looking at this again. She had no idea. She literally got in her car and drove 200, more than 200 miles to the nearest FBI office in Montana. 
and then and then told her story about how you know that Bobby Cherry had basically admitted that you know he he uh, was involved in bombing. Wow. Okay, so you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, these various reporters that had worked along the way. Oh, yeah. So Bill Baxley had done some work previous, right? Yeah, he prosecuted Bob Shambles, who was convicted in 1997. Right. In 1977. So we've got Bob Chambliss, right? We've got... Um, Thomas Blanton. Right, Thomas Blanton. Uh, Jr. And Bobby Cherry. And Bobby Cherry. Now... Uh, again, as a timestamp for our listeners, how current is this? Thomas Blanton Jr., who was a con- is convicted in the killings, right. died last month. Yeah, he did. He just died last month. June yeah. 26, 2020. So, again, I just want to... I actually texted Lisa McNair, who's the sister of Denise McNair, one of the four little girls who was killed in the bombing. I said... Uh, because they had to go through a parole hearing for him. And it was very painful for the family. Yes. And so I just texted her and said, no more parole hearings. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Think about that. You know, Jerry, I shared with you um, a story. I was invited to speak in Detroit at a wonderful um, event of uh, black and white Christians there. And wonderful churches that had sponsored that event. And after I was done speaking, a woman and her husband approached me. And um, she gathered herself. She would be uh, in her 70s. She gathered herself and she said, I played with Denise McNair on Saturday. Wow. Wow. And then she just stopped. Yeah. Wow. I played with her on Saturday. And that that uh, speaking encounter was last year. And so I think it's, it, it's very important for us to recognize that right. it seems as history to some, right. it lived experience to others. Right. But you got involved in this case. You recognize I, that there's a... I interview Bobby Cherry. I okay, so let's go for Bobby Cherry. Tell us about that experience and what unfolded. And, I, and that was my strategy with all these cases was go talk to these Klansmen as early as possible because I knew they would shut up at some point. And like, I knew they would, you know, that it worked in the Meg Rivers case to some extent and I, I wanted to kind of continue that pattern. Yep. And so uh, when interviewed Bobby Cherry, he lived uh, near Tyler, Texas, which is not far from where I grew up, you know, which is a schizophrenic town in Texarkana. So uh, anyway, I, uh, but anyway, I went over there and talked to him, took him and his wife out for barbecue, because I guess that's what you take Klansmen out for. I'm not really sure, but we, we talked for probably, you know, six hours. And he's just like, oh, I didn't have anything to do with that church bombing. I left that sign shop. The sign shop he's talking about is about about two blocks from the church. Yeah. And he's like, I left that. And so they were making Confederate flags and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I left that sign shop at a quarter to 10 because I had to get home and watch wrestling. And he pulled out this sworn affidavit from this woman. I remember that night where we were all sitting around watching wrestling. So I got back to the newsroom the next day. 
and talk to our librarian, Susan Garcia. And you, like me, remember when the newspapers used to run the entire TV schedules in a very small box <laughs> in the newspaper. It wasn't even that big, right? That's right. Entire TV schedule, because it was only on 12 or 14 hours a day, and you only had two or three channels, right? That's right. And you didn't want to miss wrestling. <laughs> yeah, you're doing a miss wrestling. He had, and so uh, Susan the next day came back to me and said there was no wrestling. So uh, it turned out there had been wrestling on for years. And so obviously I reported that. And when I called him, interestingly, he doubled down on it. He insisted he was still correct. Uh, and uh, no alibi. Yeah, so basically the alibi, you know, got, got blown away. And, and, uh, and then he was also involved in the, in the beating of Fred Shuttlesworth, which I found the footage for, uh, who was a very brave civil rights leader yes. in uh, uh, Birmingham. Yes. He was the one behind the campaign that Dr. King came in for, the Birmingham campaign with the dogs and the fire hoses that we've all seen and the letter from Birmingham jail. Yes. That was all Fred Shuttlesworth. I mean, he had been beaten and church blown up, house blown up. I mean, you're an incredibly great guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Uh, Bobby Cherry was behind that as well. Was involved with that one as well. There's even footage of it, which I didn't know, you know, I, but I, I found the footage. Wow. You know, when you go, if those of our listeners who might be interested in doing this, I'd like to suggest something to you. Sure. Uh, I'd like to suggest, first of all, to our listeners, that you take a trip to Birmingham. And when you go to the 16th Street Baptist Church, uh, then right across is the Shuttlesworth Museum, right across the street. Across the street from that is a park. Killing, where, Killing Park. Where you can see a memorial of the four girls, girls. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, right? Carol Robertson and Carol Denise McMahon. No, yeah, Denise McMahon. Yeah. When right. you go from there, then you might then uh, make a stop in Montgomery. Uh, you can go to EGI. You can go to the museum there. You can go to the lynching memorial. Uh, but and there's a and there's also one for the uh, forty martyrs. Yes, the rights movement as well as the others. Uh, you know, uh, like I've seen about the hundred twenty. That's kind of the others. Uh, no, is the that's one that's in that's the is the one for the 40 martyrs? Is it in Jackson? No, I'm talking in Montgomery. You're, oh, you're, you're talking in Montgomery, and okay. now they've also got the Rosa Parks Museum. That's uh, yes, and then if they make their way to Jackson, what I want to encourage people is this there is a vital and rich history in Jackson and the Mississippi Delta. And there are places you can go. There are museums you can visit. Uh, yeah. And these things are- The Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, I got to put in a plug for it, it's in Jackson, is in my opinion, you one of the best regional civil yeah. rights museums in the country. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, it's incredible. And, and the people who are in the movement actually agree with me on that. I, I, at least I've, most of the people I've heard who are connected to the movement some way. Yes. I agree with that. That's vital. So, but on May 22nd, 2002, the jury returns a verdict. That's right. So tell us about 
May 26. He was convicted. He was convicted of, uh, you know, and given four life sentences, one for each one of those girls. One so. for each one. Now think about the families. They were weeping. They were crying. Doug Jones, who, of course, now is Senator for Alabama, was the one who prosecuted that case. And he had actually kind of tried to run for senator, you know, at some point. And, of course, then they weren't going to allow him to prosecute that case. So he wound up dropping out of that race. And, and so he was able to come in and prosecute the case. And at least to me, it's, a, you know, along the moment, I mean, he just had tears streaming down his face. And I said to him, a lot better than running for Senate, isn't it? <laughs> no doubt, right? No doubt. 39 years. 39 years, people. Yeah, almost 40 years between the time that it happened and when he was convicted. So, so you headed back to your wife, Karen. You headed back yep. to Jackson, yep. to your family, and you kind of wondered – would the Bobby Cherry case be your last? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, almost every one of these, I thought, you know, when Bowers got convicted, I thought, oh, not, you know, it was a miracle for uh, Sam Bowers to be convicted, a miracle in the Beckwith case. And then this one I was not expecting. And then, you know, I went, I, so I just, yeah, I just wound up again. This was back in 99. This was when these cases kind of overlap. Uh, but I started working again on the Mississippi burning case because of this interview that Sam Bowers gave, which was sealed. And I was able to get somebody to leak it to me. And basically in that interview, he talked about the Mississippi burning case, which he was convicted in. And he said he was quite delighted to be convicted and have the maintenance scare the entire fair walk out of the court of a free man. Hmm. He was referring to Edgar Ray Killen. And so that's, that's what led me to Edgar Kellen and and I contacted him and we ended up, you know, talking and then met for catfish and <laughs> one of those eight ninety five barbecue this time. You met for catfish. Anyway, you know, I, I got to keep them plants and fed. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I want to so keep them pocket. At, at any time, did you just think to yourself, "I'm crazy." I think that now, <laughs> you know, at the time I was just headstrong and younger and, and thinking, you know, uh, yeah, you know, and Karen was convinced I was going to be killed. And I understand, I understand much more in retrospect than I did at the right. time. Uh, yeah. I'm much more sympathetic. You had a few times uh, that you note in the book where people even warned you that the FBI was interested in what you were doing and not necessarily in a supportive role. Yeah, well, you know, I had people, I had death threats from Klansmen, I had all sorts of things. I mean, you know, but the thing that's kind of interesting to me about that, Don, is it led to an unexpected gift, mm. you know, awesome. and that's the gift of living fearlessly, right? Because yes. living fearlessly is not about living without fear. It's mm. about living beyond fear. And that's what we as people of faith do, right? We live beyond fear. We, we have nothing to fear anymore. And uh, that's the one thing that's been kind of interesting um, to me, because that's what that is. Living fiercely is about living for something greater than ourselves, right? And that's what it's all about. 
And you see it with the people in the civil rights movement and you see it with people of faith. And that's one of the questions I often get is, weren't you worried you were going to be killed? And I remember telling, I was talking to one reporter one time, he was a longtime uh, reporter for CBS news. And I said, well, look, I figure if I get killed, I'll just get to go home sooner. And that's, that's, you know, that's something the world, you know, struggles to understand. It's like, how how are you able to, it's not me anyway, by the way, I I never feel like it's me, but anyway. That's right. You know, I think about this powerful passage, Jerry, that gripped me. Uh, You and I uh, and my wife, Susan, we were all in school, uh, Karen, at the same time. Right. And, you know, when I found my faith there and I found my relationship with God there, it began to shape a a new way of looking at the world. And I remember a verse that was impressed on me. Sure. This is in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in the region of Galatia, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Exactly. Right? Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. So the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Exactly. Who loved me and gave his life for me. Yep. But I think that verse is so informative about the way you've gone about this commitment to just taking one step after another toward justice and, uh, and loving people. So yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, that's one of the things that it, it, these cases have actually deepened my faith, to be honest, because after Sam Evers was convicted, I dove more deeply into scripture about justice. Mm. And it became very obvious to me, you know, not only does God love justice, but he is just. Ooh. It's a part of his very nature. Yes. And and we tend to think of justice as, you know, and of course we're talking about all these poor you know, what happened in court, but it's so much beyond that. It's how do we treat each other, you know, because we, when we begin to make differences, whether that's on the basis of money or the basis of race or whatever kind of thing, then we become, as James says, evil judges, right? You know, we're, it's, we are meant to judge people uh, and, and, as Paul says, we're, we're meant to think more highly of other people than ourselves. Yes. Regardless is more important than ourselves. I think it's actually what it says, yes. important than ourselves. So, boy, if we could all live by that, I mean, think about society, what, what kind of society we would have, we would all live by that. Yes, yes. So tell us a little bit now. I'd like for us people to hear. Sure. I have, a, I have this question for you. When we talk about the current climate, what might it look like if 26-year-old Jerry Mitchell was starting his journalism career in 2020? It would look a lot different, I got to tell you. You know, social media and all that other kind of stuff. I think think the the fact that I was able to work on four cases like this, actually more than that, but these, these four are the ones that the resulting convictions, um, uh, basically today you have the advantage of social media in the sense of tracking down people. So 
there's some advantages to social media. You have people that can come forward, those kind of things like that. But then the other part of that equation is it becomes known you're working on them. Whereas I kind of benefited from the fact that not everybody was reading the paper faithfully. I mean, each, each person I came to, I, well, when I came to Edgar Ray Kellen, he said, there's some guy in Jackson who keeps stirring things up and stirring things up. And I didn't have the heart to tell him it was me. <laughs> <laughs> you had the good sense to not tell him that it was me. Exactly. I didn't tell him it was me. So, uh, yeah, but he insisted, you know, when I asked him, because he said he didn't have anything to do with it. I said, the killing of three civil rights workers. I said, well, what do you think Chapter people were responsible? He says, I'm not going to say they were wrong. Mm. And then he told me that he actually wanted to shake hands with the assassin of Dr. King. And so, you know, sometimes people, and then we may, may have talked about this before, but people say to me, Jerry, why don't you leave these old guys alone? And I told them, these are, these are young killers. They just got old. I mean, you know, let's, let's be honest about this. Yes. You should have prosecuted these guys a long time ago. Yeah. And that's important. And these, and that's one of the reasons that I think your book is so vital is it, it, it actually pushes against our sensibilities a little bit and says, folks, wake up to the relevance of this, this vital work, right? Yeah. And I think that's important. Another question is this. Obviously, uh, your interest was peaked in journalism in high school, and then each ensuing experience expanded yeah. that. Um, but but you recognize you can't do everything. You're not even gifted to do everything. No, so, no, I'm, I don't know how gifted I am. I, <laughs> jack of some, some trades, maybe. <laughs> but you did, you did decide that I, you could commit your life and whatever gifts you have to the role that you could play. What would you say to people who might be like, well, you know, I'm not a journalist or I'm not a this or I'm not a that. I, I don't know how to do this part of, you know, uh, 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 justice work. What would you say to people who kind of see themselves as unqualified to really make a difference? I was totally unqualified. That's all I would say. <laughs> I think if you, I think the first, I think the first step of any journey almost is admitting how unqualified you are to make the journey. I mean, listen, I was, I was the least likely candidate to take this on. I mean, I had, I knew almost nothing about the civil rights movement. Period. I certainly knew next to nothing about the violence, incredible violence. I certainly knew about Dr. King's assassination. Yes. I was, I guess, nine at the time. And so I was aware of things like that, but man, I was just woefully ignorant about all of that. And so I think that's, and I, I'm hoping in a sense that people can read the book and, and kind of, in a sense, have your own journey. And, you know, and you may, you may already be well on that journey, but I think it, it, I can't tell you how many people, uh, both white and African-American have come back to me and said, I never knew all this happened. Yes. And my own mother, and this is the best review I've gotten so far because of course it's mom. Uh, but my mom, when she got done with the section on Beggar Evers, just had tears streaming down her face. And of course she knows the Evers family very well you know, through me and our experiences. 
um, has gotten to know Merle Lee and Rena and the whole family. And so she, my mom, after she read this section, she's crying and she says, I had no idea oh my. what they went through. And it was like, you can think you know this story. Mm-hmm. And I've had people, even the civil rights movement tell me this. I thought I knew this story. Yeah. And it's just there, there, there's a depth that we often miss. You know, the civil rights movement gets reduced to Rosa Parks sat down, Martin Luther King stood up, African-Americans got their rights in the story. But, but just simple little details that people don't necessarily know yes. uh, that Rosa Parks wasn't even the first black woman to sit on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama uh, and refuse to give a receipt and get arrested. Yes. She was the fifth. Yes. And so that's, you know, that just lets you understand that the civil rights movement was a, a broader kind of grassroots effort of yes. people. Many people, way beyond Dr. King, and that's not to take one thing away from them. That's right. And I think the beauty of that is we see today one of the lessons learned is how vital it is to recognize that every family, every community, every school, every business, every court system, every state system, every education system needs to be doing this work. And I think it's, it's not lost on me that here you are having a highly uh, recognized journalistic career and uh, awards that other people can look up because I'm only going to embarrass you once during the podcast. Okay, all right. Awards other people can look up, but you're still doing this, and now you founded this agency to continue to do this. And so wow. what, what is out there next for Jerry? Well, I love, I love the work. I think that if you think about this work, here's in my mind how it works. You've got to have truth before you have justice, right? And if you can't have justice, perhaps you can have reconciliation. But both those are impossible if you don't have truth. And so I view... You know, I view that as our role. We're, yeah, as our slogan says, we shine a light and we expose darkness. I, I think that's so important because for us as a democracy, there's no way for us to really operate or, um, without that. Yeah. And then beyond that, if you think about beyond, you think of the church and, and others, we need that. You know what I mean? What I mean is we, it's so easy to kind of, not necessarily sugarcoat, but just kind of pass over this and to not understand the depth. For us as white Americans, let's just be honest, it's very difficult for us to, we, we can even say we understand. Like I, that scene when Merle tells me that story, and that's what I said in my, you know, kind of my, you know, I said I understood, but I realized I don't understand anything. I mean, have I ever had a loved one gunned down because of hate? Have I had someone killed by police? Whatever the situation is. And look, we have a lot of good police officers. I'm not knocking police. But I'm just talking about the historical 
yes. encounters that African Americans have had with our law enforcement. And um, the other part you'd have to say if it weren't for video. Yeah. 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 And I think what you're doing through your work, and I know what you've done for me, is you've held up a mirror. You've held up a mirror. Hope so. And and called me to look at myself and the way that I function in the world. And Jerry, this is one of the reasons that it was so important for us to ask you to join us on this podcast because the purpose, as we state every week, is to catalyze these yeah. courageous conversations so that someone will, you know, close out the podcast and start an internal conversation with themselves to start a conversation with others. And what I'm hoping people will do is I'm hoping, and this is what I want to encourage people to do. I'm asking you to purchase a copy of this book. I want you to do that. The, the title of the book again by Jerry Mitchell is Race Against Time. A Reporter Reopens the Unsolved Murder Cases of the Civil Rights Era. I want you to get the book, start a book club, and just sit with each other and just start asking these questions. What did you know? What did you not know? What surprised you? What stunned you? How does it make you feel to watch that system go to work and destroy someone's life and then the same system try to cover up that they were complicit in destroying that life? And then what does it mean for uh, this self-confessed, unqualified uh, uh, green reporter to yeah. just let that, that seed of faith within you that believes what you, what you were taught and what you were led to know from the teachings of Scripture that God isn't just interested in justice, God is justice. God exactly. doesn't just love justice, God does justice. And so when you did your work, you were joining God in God's mission. And that's right. profound. I mean, look, look, look at almost all these cases. What were the odds? And I've talked to Bobby DeLauter, the prosecutor, about this before. What were the odds at the beginning of that case that that case would have ever been reopened, reprosecuted? Reopen, you know, prosecuted. It's like a million to one. Bobby and I agreed a million to one is probably accurate. Uh, the Sam Bowers conviction yes. and Vernon Damer killing was probably 10 million to one. I mean, you know, it was just like even more, you know, and then the Birmingham church bombing, um, you know, you know, if not for these witnesses coming forward from various places because they saw it on TV or they saw it read in the newspaper, they, they've told me themselves, the FBI just, we, we couldn't have done this case. Look at that. And, you, and then, and then, and then Edgar, Edgar Killen convicted on the exact anniversary of the killings 41 years later yes and yeah. something that you state that i want everyone to to hear in the book you point this out that in the case of the birmingham bombing that had that case been delayed just six more months mm -hmm. and we're talking nearly 40 years but right. had it been delayed just six more months, those witnesses would have all been passed away and it never would have seen justice. So right. the title of your book, Race Against Time. Yeah. 
So we want to make sure that we don't put off the urgency of the opportunity to live into yeah. justice and faithfulness and mercy. And Jerry, I want to thank you for being Thanks here. Thanks for having me, Don. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us on the Love First podcast. Friends, uh, we would ask you to like, uh, subscribe, and share. We would ask you to go on the website, mcir.org. Yeah, Mississippi. Oh, Mississippi. Mississippi. CR. Right. CR. Mississippi. Uh, I was using your email address. Sorry about Sorry. that. Mississippi cir.org and check this out uh support that work buy the book and let's all commit to whatever gifts energy opportunity we have to do justice love mercy and walk humbly with god thank Amen. you for joining us for the love first podcast